Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. We have a fantastic show for you guys today. We are going to talk about a wild week over at the Pentagon with the firing of the Secretary of the Navy and President Trump seemingly getting involved in the most minute details of their military justice system. We're going to talk about impeachment and whether John Bolton uh, should be a part of this process and will be compelled to be. Talk about some really momentous elections in Hong Kong and what they mean about the future of that protest movement and Beijing's ability to project power into the area. We're going to talk about President Trump, for some reason, trying to extort our allies in Japan for more money to allow us to keep 54,000 U.S. service members in Japan, a really critical piece of our Asia force structure that he's, for some reason, trying to unravel. And then we are going to talk about the ISIS mission in Syria. My guest today is Yair Rosenberg from Tablet Magazine. He's going to walk us through what the hell is going on with Bibi Netanyahu, because he was just indicted on three separate cases. Israel is in the midst of just political turmoil. There have been two elections this year. The government formation process is not done yet. No one knows what's going to happen, uh, but it, it could be a momentous change in Israel. So I'm really excited to talk with him. My guest host today is Kelly Magsman. You guys have heard her several times before. She's the vice president of national security and international policy at Center for American Progress, but she's also an incredibly accomplished foreign policy expert who's worked at the State Department, the Pentagon, and the White House with us. Ben is on his way back from Hong Kong, so he will fill us in on all those travels next week. But until then, I'm thrilled to have Kelly. So one little personal note here. Uh, well, two, actually. One, if you don't mind, if you want to help save the republic, if you don't want to let Stacey Abrams down, please go to votesaveamerica.com slash fair fight. If you can chip in even five bucks to help her put election protection teams into all the key swing states, it's maybe the most important thing we could do to help us win in 2020. The other thing is my second episode of my Iowa series is out. It's on the Pod Save America feed. It dropped on Tuesday. If you want to learn about all the cool history behind why Iowa is first in the nominating process, if you want to hear the rules of the caucuses, we'll actually take you to one in Polk County, and you can hear what it's like to actually be there. This is from 2016. And then lastly, you will hear from undecided voters. You'll meet with our field organizers again. I think it's my favorite episode we've done so far. And so I would love it if you guys would give it a shot and share it if you enjoy it. So without any further ado, let's go full world though. And uh, here's Kelly Magsman. Kelly, thank you again for doing the show. Good to be here. Great to have you back. Um, okay, Mags, weird weekend over uh, at the Pentagon, tumultuous few, day, a few days to say the least. So 
On last week's episode, Ben and I talked about Trump's decision to pardon a bunch of members of the military who are convicted of or accused of committing war crimes. One of those individuals is a Navy SEAL named Eddie Gallagher, who was accused but acquitted of murdering a teenage ISIS fighter uh, and convicted of posing for a photo with that ISIS fighter's corpse. We should note the guy was like 12 or 15. He's very young. Um, After a right-wing media campaign, Trump ended up intervening and restored Gallagher's rank, but the Navy leadership reportedly wanted to review the case and take away his trident, which is basically means kicking him out of the Navy SEALs. So most observers have been saying that Trump interfering in the military justice system is destined to be a bad idea. And over the weekend, they were proven right when the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, fired Richard Spencer, who's the Secretary of the Navy. Spencer released this scathing letter that talked about how good order and discipline is quite literally a life and death matter for members of the military. And I think he wrote about it very compellingly. But he concluded, and I'm going to read a long quote here. Unfortunately, it has become apparent that in this respect, I no longer share the same understanding with the commander in chief who appointed me in regards to the key principle of good order and discipline. I cannot in good conscience obey an order that I believe violates the sacred oath I took in the presence of my family, my flag and my faith to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Wow. So, Kelly, that makes it sound like Spencer quit because Trump was inappropriately intervening in the military justice system. But the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, said to reporters today that he fired Spencer because Spencer was maybe negotiating some deal directly with the White House about Gallagher's fate without telling him and going through the appropriate chain of command. Um, On Monday, Esper also told reporters that Trump had ordered him to allow Gallagher to retain his trident pin. So it sounds like Trump intervened again in the Navy's, you know, proceedings. Um, Meanwhile, Eddie Gallagher has been out in the press a lot. He's been criticizing his commanders. Um, This is just a mess. So Kelly, you know, you worked in senior roles at the Pentagon. What did you make of this extraordinary intervention by Trump? And what do you think it means for the military as an institution? Well, the whole thing is incredibly disturbing um, from a civil military relations standpoint. And frankly, nobody has covered themselves in glory here. (laughs) Not Secretary Esper, not Secretary Spencer, and certainly not the president of the United States. But let me first start with with President Trump. You know, I think bottom line is he essentially has inserted himself into the military justice process. And he's done it in a way that I think is going to warp it forever. I think that the effects are going to go well beyond the case of uh, Chief Petty Officer Gallagher. I think it's we're now going to see a number of uh, similar cases that have been settled in the military justice system come back with people trying to advocate their case via Fox News, the president of the United States. So I actually think that this whole effort has actually unleashed an entire Pandora's box on that front. Um, listen, the, the commander in chief is a commander in chief. He can make uh, decisions and he has the ability to make these kinds of decisions, but it doesn't mean it's proper and it doesn't mean it's he should make those decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Secretary Spencer did say something really important in his letter, which is essentially this is not how the U.S. military operates. This is how our adversaries operate. And what makes us distinct from our adversaries is that we operate on an ethical code. Um, and I think that Trump has just shown essentially that he doesn't have any fidelity to ethics, to morals, to rule of law. And you can think about this in the context of other issues on national security. But this has been like the, the, the core encapsulation of the president's basic amoral view on these on these matters. Um, you know, it's interesting to me. I was I was you know, I was actually in Halifax, Canada this weekend uh, with Secretary Spencer uh, at this sort of international uh, security conference. And there was lots of speculation about, you know, whether the secretary would resign 
um, whether or not he would be fired, et cetera, et cetera. My basic view is if you're a if you're a senior civilian in the Department of Defense and you don't think that you can implement the order of the president of the United States for whatever reason, for moral reasons or policy disagreements, then you shouldn't be in that position. Um, and what I would have thought would have been a better move for Spencer would have been to actually just resign <laughs> uh, rather than, you know, threatening to resign mm-hmm. or playing it out in the press and just come forward and say, this is why I resigned. Um, but he didn't choose to do that. Now, Secretary Esper um, doesn't come across looking too great here either. Uh, it's very clear to me that he's not going to stand in the way of the president on many questionable things. So this is just the latest incident. I mean, he's he's implemented the border wall funding transfer for the president. He's uh, he's he's executed the Microsoft cloud contract. You know, the president was intervening, trying to get uh, Amazon out of the competition for that contract because he hates Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Now you're seeing uh, how Esper is essentially saying, yep, I'm just going to implement the president's order, even if I disagree with it. And not. so there, so Esper is not exactly proving himself to be a hero in this scenario. This scenario either. I mean, bottom line is this is a mess. It's going to have serious implications uh, for civil military relations going forward. And frankly, I think if there is a new president of the United States in 2021 and he has a new secretary of defense, that person is going to spend probably the entire term trying to dig out of the mess that the president has created in terms of politicizing the military and politicizing the processes uh, that govern civil military relations. Yeah. I mean, so – at the risk of being grisly, I just want folks to understand what some of these charges were against Gallagher. So uh, apparently there was an ISIS fighter who had been you know, taken captive. They were giving him medical attention. And the allegation was that Chief Gallagher took out a knife and stabbed the captive several times in the neck and torso. Again, he was acquitted of those charges, but that was the accusation. He was also accused of firing a sniper rifle at civilians, including school-aged girls. Um, SEALs who turned him in have been threatened uh, both, you know, with violence, but also with getting in trouble in terms of, uh, you know, within the SEALs. So I guess I just want people to understand that because there are, you're seeing a lot of folks out there saying, um, you civilians can't imagine the kind of stress and strain that someone like Eddie Gallagher is under in a war zone, and maybe he should get a pass on some of this behavior. But what I want folks to understand is that it was his guys in his unit who were sounding the alarm here and asking the Pentagon leadership to do something. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Gallagher is not a hero among the SEAL community, (laughs) that's for sure. Um, I'm actually waiting to see whether or not uh, the SEAL commander, Rear Admiral Green, uh, actually uh, decides to resign. Because the president's order will essentially undermine uh, Rear Admiral Green's authority within the SEAL community. So I'll be, I'm kind of waiting to see if, if he comes forward with a resignation. It's also important to know that the Navy SEALs have been going through a really serious challenge around uh, behavior, and Admiral yeah. Green has been actually trying to clean that up. You've had 150, approximately 150 SEALs lose their Trident pin since 2011 for bad behavior on a range of issues. So there's a deeper corrosive problem within the Navy SEALs. I think Rear Admiral Green was actually trying to clean it up. And now the president has been essentially, you know, pulled the rug out from underneath him. Yeah. I mean, look, these are men and women who are uh, punished for, you know, not having their uniform looking right or, or, or a bed made in basic training. I mean, like it's an organization, an institution, a group of people that revere and, and honor discipline. And I just, the, the idea that it would be 
I don't know, politically beneficial to the president among the military to give someone a pass that has been accused of things this grave is is kind of surprising to me. It feels like a bit of a misread of, you know, how a lot of folks who you and I worked with, including Navy SEALs, uh, operate. That's right. I've I've worked with a number of Navy SEALs uh, throughout my career, and I can tell you uh, that pretty much everybody, as far as I know, is beside themselves with respect to the president's uh, actions here. Um, and it's d- deeply corrosive uh, to morale. Uh, it's deeply corrosive to rule of law within the military. And frankly, you know, abroad, you know, the U.S. military, again, this is this is something that I don't think the president truly understands is that there is uh, a code uh, that the military lives by and that we're respected for around the world. Um, and the president clearly doesn't believe in that code. Yeah. OK. Let's turn to the impeachment trials for a bit because that's slightly less depressing. Um <laughs> I don't know. I have to say, Kelly, watching these hearings uh, made me think of you. It made me think of like so many of the folks I was lucky enough to work with while at the NSC. You know, you worked at the State Department. You worked at the U.S. mission to NATO. You did Iran policy at the National Security Council during the Bush and the Obama administration. You were a deputy assistant secretary uh, at the Pentagon. I mean, we probably spent hundreds of hours in meetings or in conversations about policy, but I, I don't think I ever talked to you about politics once. I, I It would have felt weird to ask. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if you personally knew any of the folks who testified, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I certainly, you know, they, they reminded me of a lot of other people we worked with. So just curious, like generally what you made of the testimony you've seen so far and what has been the reaction in the, you know, nonpartisan foreign policy community uh, that the folks you know about how these people have been treated? Yeah, you know, the past uh, past couple of weeks have been pretty intense. Um, you know, I worked closely with pretty much all of them <laughs> that testified. Oh, wow. Uh, I would, worked with Bill Taylor when I was at the NSC working on Arab Spring issues. I worked with George Kent back at uh, the State Department early in my career. Uh, I actually worked very closely with Laura Cooper and, and was on her promotion board at the Pentagon. So, you know, a number of these folks are, are pretty um, – very familiar to me. And just to sort of watch them, uh, you know, it didn't surprise me that they performed so well uh, in front of a lot of, you know, under the, under a lot of political pressure, of course, and a lot of scrutiny. And the fact that they were so distinguished in how they presented uh, their perspectives uh, was something that didn't surprise me. And, you know, it, it's such a, a serious contrast, frankly, to, you know, what you saw with Rudy Giuliani and, you know, Ambassador Sondland and sort of the, what I like to say is the goon squad mm-hmm. of President Trump and how they were trying to, you know, implement this whatever domestic political era that Fiona Hill referred to it as, you know, it was pretty it was pretty interesting contrast to me. The other piece of it is, I've you know, I've worked for Republicans. I've been in the NSC in the Bush administration. I've been in the Obama NSC, as you know. And if I had been sitting on that phone call <laughs> with Zelensky and, and President Trump, I would have immediately been, this is not okay, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think most national security f- officials know that what the president did on that call was not okay. Um, and it doesn't really, it's kind of a no-brainer. It doesn't actually take a lot to understand that. And frankly, I think the American people also kind of get it. They also think, well, you know what? This is not, this doesn't smell right. Now, whether that translates into, you know, the Republicans actually casting votes in favor of impeachment, I don't know. But I will say that, from a national security perspective, uh, it was very obvious to me just from that call, but every and, and including everything we've learned since that call, transcript was ele- released and the whistleblower report came out, um, has essentially you know undergirded that. Yeah, 
Uh, it was also very notable and clear the, the degree to which the people testifying had uh, expertise and understanding of the issues as compared to some of the people uh, seeking to undercut their credibility. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think, again, there's a reason why you saw, you know, the, the National Security New Democrats come out with that letter uh, that really tipped the scales uh, to getting into an impeachment proceeding because it's the facts are pretty obvious <laughs> at this stage um, and it doesn't take uh, a lot of specifics to really understand what went down here. Uh, the president of the United States essentially is advancing a foreign policy purely for his political interests. Yep. And that is um, – that is not okay. In fact, that's sort of the core of of, of what impeachment is about. Yeah. Um, one person, Kelly, who has not seemed to take any responsibility for this mess is Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton. Uh, so far, he seems to be busy getting a book deal, giving corporate speeches, uh, and allegedly liberating his Twitter feed from the White House. Uh, let's hope that that liberation campaign results <laughs> in fewer casualties than the one he pushed for in Iraq. Morbid joke. Um, what what information do you think Bolton could offer if he wanted to testify? And do you think that Congress should be going to the mattresses to compel his testimony? Yeah, I think I think John Bolton's testimony is going to be key. I think uh, Mick Mulvaney too. Um, you know, listen, it's kind of the classic question of what did he know and when did he know it, <laughs> right? right. Um, and the National Security Advisor, in a normal circumstance, would be at the center of all these decisions, right? So the center around. Uh, whether or not to withhold the aid to Ukraine. He would have been on all the calls. He would have been in all the meetings. He would have an understanding of the president's actual policy intent around these matters, which I think is a key key question for Bolton. So, you know, did the president talk or did the president instruct Bolton on uh, withholding aid? Does 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 Bolton understand what the president's instructions were around that, whether he was directly involved or not? I mean, I think he does have uh, a, a position that would give him uh, purview to understand some of the or to answer some of these questions. So, I think Bolton's is pretty key. I think Mick Mulvaney is equally key, if not more. Um, you know, as you know, OMB doesn't do anything without a paper trail and guidance. Right. <laughs> so I suspect there's lots of you know guidance memos around the the, the assistance and the cutoff. Uh, I'd like to know what what Mulvaney communicated to both Bolton and to Pompeo because I assume the three of them would have had to have had a conversation around it. Um, and, you know, all three of them knew what the president intended to do. It's not as if Mick Mulvaney, you know, suddenly cared about corruption in Ukraine. No, you know? not at all. <laughs> you know? Not for a second. Um, and, you know, and Bolton, again, going back to the call record itself, like Bolton would have had to had a, played a role in the decision to put that call record on that secret, super secret squirrel server that we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think he's he's pretty key now whether or not he'll be compelled to testify uh, maybe in a Senate trial, I don't know, um, but he certainly should. He's, you know, his subordinates are out there. Uh, Fiona Hill has testified, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman. Um, so it's pretty cowardly that he's sitting back and and holding back at this point. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. 
The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. So some good news. There were some pretty amazing local elections on Sunday in Hong Kong. The turnout was massive. I saw that 71% of eligible voters voted. And these were for like city council elections. It's not like the the presidential race. So uh, pro-democracy candidates won 389 of 452 elected seats. That's up from 124. Um, Again, these are, you know, council seats that deal with local issues. But the results were seen as a referendum on the protest movement generally and really a shot across the bow uh, at the Chinese. Now, like we should note that the Hong Kong government is structured in a way that elections like these can only get you so far. For example, the chief executive of Hong Kong is chosen by a committee that is just completely stacked in favor of uh, the Chinese government. But clearly, this is a sign that popular opinion is with these protesters. And, you know, Kelly, I imagine you've been watching these protests with, you know, like a dash of hope, but, you know, probably as much anxiety as I have felt. Um, I'm curious what you made of the results generally. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, a fascinating result. Um, not only did the pro-democracy folks win that many seats, but the pro-Beijing folks were down over 300, which is a pretty significant drop. Um, listen, I think I think Xi Jinping had a bad week. Mm-hmm. I think between the results uh, of these elections in Hong Kong, uh, we have in Taiwan, of course, elections coming up in January, and Tsai Ing-wen is, is polling pretty high at the moment. Uh, you had the leaks around Xinjiang uh, of the of the Chinese Communist Party documents that essentially show how Xinjiang is is a prison camp, a concentration camp. Uh, you had the discovery uh, in Australia that the Chinese, you know, tried to essentially plant a Manchurian candidate <laughs> uh, in parliamentary elections. There, I mean, Xi Jinping, I think, is is suffering a series of setbacks um, on the foreign policy side. And what's interesting to me is to see whether or not the result in Hong Kong uh, either induces Beijing to take a, a more reasonable approach or actually potentially we see an even further crackdown uh, from Beijing. Yeah, that worries me too. Um, quickly domestically on this issue. So last week, Congress nearly unanimously passed a, a bill called the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. The thing passed by unanimous consent, I believe, in the Senate and then in the House, the only lawmaker period uh, to oppose it was Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky. So whatever, that's his problem. But um, (laughs) the the bill authorizes sanctions on uh, Chinese or Hong Kong officials involved in human rights abuses. It also requires the State Department to basically conduct an annual review of Hong Kong's political situation to see if they're uh, under the thumb of Beijing or not in order to keep a favorable uh, trade agreement with the U.S. So seems like you know, I can't remember the last time we talked about something with that much bipartisan support. Yeah. But on Friday, Trump threatened to veto the bill. He told uh, Fox and Friends, where all you go for all your foreign policy news these days, that, quote, we have to stand with Hong Kong, but I'm also standing with Xi Jinping. Uh, that's very decisive leadership right there. He also <laughs> said, if it weren't for me, Hong Kong would have been obliterated in 14 minutes. So great. Um, 
you know, all observers think that he just cares about trying to get a trade agreement done with the Chinese. But Kelly, I mean, one, this bill passed with a, a veto-proof majority, so I'm not sure what he thinks he can do about it. And two, China experts from both parties seem to think that you should be able to negotiate this trade deal on one track while dealing with Hong Kong on another. Uh, do you think this legislation is is a good step forward? And what did you make of this uh, negotiating technique from our president? <laughs> So I do think it's I think it's strong legislation. I think it's important legislation. It's an important signal that the United States uh, at a bipartisan level still cares about democracy and democratic values and the universal rights of people around the world. Um, I'm also not surprised that Donald Trump is threatening to veto it and sees it as some sort of chit uh, in the negotiations with Beijing, which should also actually give us pause on a number of matters, including Taiwan, North Korea and other issues. Um, that he is he is intently focused on uh, getting this trade deal so that he can have a personal victory uh, ahead of the elections. Um, you know, I was also so National Security Advisor O'Brien was up in Halifax as well, and he made some comments uh, as well on it in, in support of the bill. Um, but he also sort of indicated the president, you know, may or may not sign it. Um, this is like a no brainer. I mean, there's no reason why Trump <laughs> should not sign this bill. It's going to get passed. Uh, either way, I'm certain the, that the the Congress will override any veto. So it's really kind of a no-brainer. So the fact that he chooses uh, to not sign it or to veto it, uh, I think is it sends a st- strong signal about where the president head lies with respect to you know core democratic values, which I guess shouldn't surprise us at this point. But it's also you know if if the president do, does veto the bill or not sign it. That's a sign of weakness to, to Beijing. Hmm, that that shows Beijing that they can manipulate the president on the on the issues that they care about. Yeah, and uh, he's going to think it's a you know oh I'm just cutting a business deal or a real estate deal and it's a give and take. But there's actually profound implications coming from that decision. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know it's interesting we talk about how the the president of the United States no longer has any interest in human rights or democracy, and this is happening at a time when you're seeing protest movements all over the place. That's right. All of a sudden. I mean, you were the senior advisor for Middle East reform during the height of the Arab Spring. We're now seeing protest movements in Iraq, Iran, Lebanon. I mean, I could go on and on. What do you make of this sort of act two of the Arab Spring that seems to be happening across the region? I have a couple of thoughts. You know, first, I think it's it tells me that there is something generational going on here. Because um, if you look at the leadership of these movements, it's largely youth-driven. Uh, and I think it sends a signal to all of the world's leaders um, that they're, that young people want to have a say in their life. They want to have accountability for their leadership. Um, and it's going to be something that they that is not going to be able to be controlled. So, you know, Xi Jinping's worst nightmare, of course, is that Hong Kong spreads to to, to Taiwan. And suddenly you have Taiwanese youth in the streets uh, demanding uh, democratic freedoms. So there's something going on here that I don't think we can quite fully understand. And it's a cutting across different countries and different issue sets. Um, but I do think it's going to be the wave of the future. I think this is going to be a constant churn um, of young people out there trying to make a difference, whether it's on climate change or anti-corruption or you know, rights in Hong Kong. I think this is going to be a trend we see going forward. So you talked about uh, Xi Jinping's rough week. Uh, Let me uh, offer him some consolation here. So last week, Ben and I talked about 
how the North Korea talks are, you know, collapsing, if not collapsed. And then on top of that, you had Trump's demand that South Korea pay 400% more to keep U.S. troops on the Korean peninsula. I just want to also note for listeners that Trump is simultaneously demanding that Japan pay five times more than they current what they currently pay to keep U.S. forces stationed in Japan. Um, the Japan Times reported that this message had been delivered by John Bolton back in July, and then his Japanese counterparts pointed out that Japan already pays way more of these expenses than other allies like South Korea and Germany. So the U.S. forces Japan consists of approximately 54,000 military personnel. Uh, they're stationed there pursuant to a treaty dating back to 1960, signed by Douglas MacArthur, I believe. So two-part question for you. I mean, We've talked in the past about how Trump was demanding that NATO allies invest more in their militaries. And while if you really unpack what he said, it's clear that he doesn't understand how NATO works. There is some merit to his general argument that the U.S. has been shouldering a lot of that burden and that others need to invest more. Right. Is there any merit to the claim that Japan should pay more for our, our basing there? And then bigger picture. I mean, can you talk about what these forces do and how important uh, U.S. forces Japan are to our national security generally? Sure. I mean, of course, you already mentioned Japan as a treaty ally of the United States. Uh, we have defense obligations to, to Japan. But they're also really critical players with respect to both China and North Korea. Um, so when I think about what the president's doing, at least he's consistent on the, in the theme of extorting uh, foreign governments. Right. Um, but this is a this is a perfect win for China. It's a win for North Korea to have the president of the United States essentially doing their dirty work vis-a-vis our democratic allies, which they would love to undermine the relationship between the United States and Japan and the United States and South Korea. That's like a that's a number one strategic objective for for both China and North Korea. So it's very weird for me to see the president uh, going to uh, to essentially play into that. Um, keep in mind, Japan pays about two billion dollars a year. Uh, for, you know, shares the cost of our stationing of our forces there. They also pay for military construction at Guam. Um, they've done a number of contributions to the counter-ISIS campaign to Afghanistan. Uh, they're a pretty good ally, especially in terms of burden sharing. So for the for the president of the United States to essentially say to Japan, you know what, not only do you have to pay $2 billion, you have to pay $8 billion. That's an insane... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That is an insane <laughs> bargaining position, um, and it undermines uh, Japan politically at a time when you know we really need them on everything from you know deal- the relationship with China uh, and and on North Korea issues. So it's completely counterproductive to me. I don't truly understand it. You know, if the president talks about competition with China as his like number one national security strategy priority, this is a complete uh, own goal with respect to that. It's just baffling. It's, I don't get it. I don't. I can't understand it. It's an extortion theme, and and keep in mind. Listen, like a lot of Americans question about how much military basing overseas costs. I will tell you that if those forces weren't based in Japan, they would be based back in the United States. And let me tell you how expensive that would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. <laughs> so it's not as if, it's not as if it's like a you know if we bring them home, there's no cost to that. Um, it, absolutely not the case. We'd actually have to build more basing, more housing. Uh, et cetera. And that would be extremely expensive here in the United States where no one would, no one would be doing the burden sharing. At least the Japanese are are ponying up a significant amount. Um, so they also play a role in, of course, missile defense and uh, a number of our contingency plans around war uh, in the region. Yeah, it's just... Ugh. But as he's consistent, man. He's, extortion is, is the name of his game. Yeah, extortion is the name of the game. And, and seemingly charging the most you possibly can for services is like kind of the only concept he understands. It's just, 
it, like it would take it wouldn't take a, a four hour seminar from General Mattis over in the tank at the <laughs> Pentagon to explain that our alliances in Asia are one of the most important tools we have to, I don't know, push back on China or project power into the region. And yet he's just hell-bent on driving them away from us. Well, I mean, look at NATO. I mean, NATO and Ukraine, I mean, he's essentially gifting Russia on those two issues. He's gifting China on on the pressure on Japan and South Korea. I mean, it's insane to me that to see the president of the United States essentially playing into the hands of our adversaries. Yeah, agreed. Okay, last question for you. So, uh, Kelly, I woke up this morning, I read the paper, and it said that U.S. troops have resumed counterterrorism missions against ISIS in northern Syria with the Kurds. And I just felt like my, my brain went into a time warp because a couple months ago, Trump announced we were pulling all U.S. troops out of northeastern Syria, and now I'm confused as to what the policy is. So the Times suggested that we maybe have half as many uh, U.S. troops patrolling essentially the same area. Um, I also saw some pretty disconcerting reports that Turkish-backed militias had attacked a Syrian refugee camp over the weekend. So that was awful. And it also apparently happened the, the same day Mike Pence visited Erbil, which is the capital of Iraq's Kurdish region. And it comes not long after um, President Erdogan was in the Oval Office with Trump and was apparently read the riot act by a bunch of senators who were pushing him uh, on this military operation in northeastern Syria. So I, I guess my question to you is like, what is your sense of what our policy is at the moment, our forced posture? H- have things gone back to where they were? I'm confused. <laughs> You're not the only one. I'm confused. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm certain that uh, our troops on the ground are, are also confused. Um, listen, I don't know. I mean, the president uh, obsessively talks about protecting the oil and that being the core mission. Then you have uh, the CENTCOM Commander General Com- Com- uh, McKenzie out there saying that, you know, this is for counter ISIS. But then we're told that ISIS has been decimated. Uh, so there's lots of confusing messaging about what the specific mission of these forces will be. And even if, you know, the military is able to finagle some sort of below the radar, small presence, the fact that there's not a strategic uh, presidential level understanding of what they are supposed to be doing in support of a broader strategic objective is really bad, in my view. Um, deploying forces is the most sacred thing that the president of the United States can do. He owes them the clarity around their mission. Um And so that really just bothers me fundamentally. Um, But the other piece of this is like taking Syria aside for a second. The fact that we've seen this much erraticism in the president's decision making on this issue alone. Just think about if we were in the middle of an additional new war. Say, you know, for example, something happened vis-a-vis Iran and we were Mm -hmm. in hostilities. The fact that there's no clarity and no consistency and, and the presence all over the map announcing things by a, by a tweet that his military has not agreed to, that there's no process around what the president's trying to do, that should really give Americans pause <laughs> that the commander in chief is so incoherent and that the people around him are also unable to drive coherence. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and that there's a disconnect clearly between some of the national security folks around him and the president himself. In a, in a war circumstance where the fog of war is, you know, very hard to deal with, that that would be potentially fatal um, for a lot of men and women in the uniform. Yeah, Ugh, not good. Um, 
Kelly Mags, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, happy Thanksgiving week. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. And I <laughs> you know, hope to see you soon. Hopefully nothing happens over Thanksgiving. <laughs> but I know that that's not going to be the case. Yeah, let's hope it's very quiet and he does no tweeting. <laughs> all right, Kelly, thanks again. Thank you. After the break, we'll have my conversation with Yair Rosenberg about Bibi Netanyahu's political future. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Joining me now is Yair Rosenberg. He's a senior writer at Tablet Magazine. Yair, thank you so much for doing the show. It's great to be here. I'm a longtime reader and liker of your tweets, so it's fun to actually talk in person. So <laughs> big news here. Uh, last week, the Israeli Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu, was indicted on charges of fraud, bribery, and breach of trust. Uh, these cases have been lingering in the background for a long time, but they were finally announced at this particularly perilous moment for Bibi's political future. Um, my understanding is there's three different cases. He was accused of trading regulatory relief for positive media coverage or negative media coverage of his opponents. So that's one. There's another case that's very similar, but with a different news outlet. He was also accused of doing favors for a rich guy in Hollywood in exchange for like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cigars and champagne. Uh, my understanding is BB tried to pass a law through the Knesset that would have given all members of parliament immunity from prosecution, but that did not fly. So instead, he has gone full Donald Trump messaging strategy. He's calling it a witch hunt. He's attacking the prosecutor the media, basically everybody. Netanyahu is the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history and has often seemed to be you know, all but invincible. But it does seem like he's starting to face some criticism from within the Likud party, his party. So yeah, you're, I'm so grateful that you're on because you are an expert in all these things. Uh, and I have many questions for you. The first is, you know, can you just kind of walk us through some of the details of these cases? I mean, I think there are so many of them that they've been numbered, 1,000, 2,000, and so on and so forth. But like, what's our buddy BB accused of? Yeah. So these cases have been going on for quite some time. Um, it's been a very long and deliberate and investigative process. And uh, it gets a little bit uh, abstract when you talk about bribery, fraud, breach of trust. What does that actually mean? Uh, so concretely, there are three cases that Netanyahu was indicted on. Um, one uh, had to do with the publisher of Israel's uh, largest paper, uh, Yediot Akronot, um, which has been critical of Netanyahu for some time. Uh, and he was competing with it uh, through a rival free paper called Yisrael Hayom, which is funded by someone your readers know and love. Yes, my friend. Sheldon Adelson. So Adelson's paper was free uh, and very right wing and obviously seen as a mouthpiece uh, for Netanyahu. And it was muscling Yediot Akronot out of the marketplace. And so Netanyahu initiated or was involved in a dialogue with the publisher of Yediot Akronot and said, Oh, I can, you know, 
talk to Sheldon Adelson and get him to limit the circulation of his publication if you guys will ease up on me. Wow. Um, and so that's basically the case. And I think, you know, people don't realize because overseas, of course, Netanyahu got indicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these indictments also involve giant moguls in Israel. So the owner of Yediot Achronot, this massive newspaper, the lar- most read Israeli Hebrew news website, uh, was indicted along with Netanyahu. Uh, and, and this engagement in this claim that this is bribery. Um, so that's one case. Uh, a second case, as you said, similar, uh, but not the same, uh, involves a, a man named Shaul Elovich, who is the um, controlling shareholder in Bezek. Think of it as maybe like a Verizon-type company okay. in Israel. If you get internet or cell service, you're going to often deal with them. Okay. Uh, he also owned a news outlet called Walla. And in exchange for more favorable coverage of Netanyahu, which was very much detailed, there's details in the indictment about communications between the two, um, and Netanyahu and others close to him directing coverage in Walla, uh, Netanyahu did regulatory favors, uh, or so is alleged, um, for Elevich and Bezek, this communications company. Um, and then three is the more traditional case of sort of quid pro quo type bribery type stuff where you have this Hollywood uh, producer and this Australian multimillionaire who were uh, friends of Netanyahu and his family. And they would uh, give all sorts of favors uh, to the Netanyahu family. One of them is alleged to have given cigars and champagne and other stuff in numbering in like vast amounts uh, to Netanyahu as gifts of friendship, but of course, which came with Netanyahu intervening on these people's behalf in various matters that save them money on taxes, help them get visas, all sorts of things that we don't want necessarily our government officials to do. Um, for readers who are, you know, for listeners who are interested in this, uh, the Times of Israel actually did a great service and they translated the entire uh, indictment and criminal charges uh, several months ago uh, when they first came out into English. Oh, wow. And you can find that online and Google it. And those who want to nerd out on it, they can read all of it. And there's a more succinct summary that came out just a few days ago uh, that the Attorney General in Israel put out. And that too, the Times of Israel translated. So if you search for Netanyahu indictment English, you can actually read this stuff for yourself. So, I mean, this seems like blockbuster stuff, like you said. I mean, it's a prime minister. It's these, you know, huge moguls. I mean, imagine like the Murdochs are suddenly indicted. But, you know, so I think any reasonable person would be uh, forgiven for thinking, oh, man, big trouble for Bibi Netanyahu. But, you know, historically, you're not getting rich betting against Netanyahu. I mean, he's always found ways to get out of controversy. He's won tight elections. He's otherwise he's a survivor. So... Uh, this time, I, I'm curious what you think. I mean, it does like it does seem like this could be different. There are opinion polls that suggest that even right wing voters don't want their prime minister to be battling back a court case. You're starting to see members of the Likud party step up and maybe challenge Netanyahu. I mean, I don't want to ask you to make predictions, but what's your sense of the political lay of the land for Bibi right now? Yeah, Netanyahu is seen as the consummate political survivor. He's the sort of person who it feels like all of this stuff uh, just bounces off of him. Uh, His line on these investigations for years was, um, there is nothing, there will be nothing, um, there's no no smoke, there's no fire. that being said, and I think in a you know an American context, we're familiar with this sort of politician where it seems like the big bombshell lands, and then everyone makes a big deal about of it in the news outlets, and then everything continues as it was before. And you wonder, does any of it actually matter? Um, the thing about uh, this indictment is that it does seem to have mattered uh, in all sorts of ways, and we're seeing that within Netanyahu's party, and we're also seeing it in the opinion polls 
in Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that the man who indicted Netanyahu, uh, Abichai Mandelblit, Israel's attorney general, was Netanyahu's own cabinet secretary, and he was appointed by Netanyahu to this position. So he has a certain credibility that is hard, despite Netanyahu's campaign, uh, to discredit, because people do not see this person as someone in the tank for the political opposition. They see it as somebody who went through a very careful, deliberative process and ended up at this conclusion almost reluctantly. Um, so what you see in terms of, say, the public opinion polls uh, is that Likud and Netanyahu, one of the reasons why, say, in the American context, Trump can get away with the things he does, is that his party members don't think it's in their interest to challenge him. They worry for their own electoral future. Um, they don't think Trump is necessarily dragging them down. In fact, they're worried about challenging him. Uh, when it comes to Netanyahu, it appears to be the opposite at this point in time. Because as you know, Israel's just gone through several elections. Um, and they have not been able to form a government. And a lot of the jockeying for position now, possibly in advance of a third election, or in this a 21-day period where a government could still be formed, is who gets the blame for why we don't have a government. And whoever gets the blame obviously goes into the next election with a big handicap, or in any negotiations for government now with a handicap. And polls show that 50% uh, of Israelis blame Netanyahu oh, wow. uh, for them not having a government, and 25% blame Gantz, uh, his chief challenger. That's exactly where Gantz and the Blue and White Party want to be, uh, whether going into an election or in some sort of negotiation at the last minute. Uh, because that says to Likud party members and people who want to get in Knesset that we're going to get blamed if we go to a third election and you know millions of shekels get spent on this. All of Israeli public life is disrupted for a third unprecedented time. Well, it's very clear who's going to get blamed, and it's specifically Netanyahu because it's viewed as the reason we don't have a government is not that there isn't a consensus among the politicians about how to form one, but that Netanyahu wants a very specific government with a bunch of his allies who will give him immunity, as you discussed. And the challenging opposition party, Blue and White, refuses to countenance that. Right. Uh, and Israelis understand that. And they say, well, this is Netanyahu's fault. It's a personal thing that he is putting over, you know, the national interest. And that that is getting through. So now you're seeing in Likud itself, cracks starting to appear. And you're seeing different approaches. Obviously, you have a small but serious uh, element of support. People have come out uh, and said, we still support Netanyahu. It's all, a, you know, a witch hunt, or as Netanyahu called it, a coup. Um, but you have much more notably... Um, many of his previous loyalists who have said nothing to the press. There was a lovely little meme that was done on Twitter where Israeli reporters basically staked out uh, Likud meeting with all the leaders walking by and asked them for their opinion. And they all just say, hello, great day, good day. It's nice to see you. And they all refused <laughs> to ask, answer the most obvious question that everyone in the country wants to ask. They add some Curb Your Enthusiasm music, instant virality. Um, that actually happened. So that's one. But then even more significant, you have two different paths that have already been proposed by people who are jockeying to succeed Netanyahu um, and are basically now trying to push him out in more and less polite ways. So you have the... Uh, one of the most popular former ministers in Likud, a guy named Gidon Saar, um, a Likudnik through and through, who responded to Netanyahu's speech claiming that this is a coup against him, saying you can't you know, just attack all the institutions in our country and claim that everyone's out to get you. That's not how you run things. And moreover, we would have a government right now that would have Likud in it if not for you and your insistence on things like immunity. And so he says we need to hold party primaries right now and we can vote for a new leader and then I can take us into the next election or into the next government. And it's going to be totally fine for us, but we need to get rid of this albatross that is Netanyahu. Um, then you had the more polite approach, which was Nir Barkat, uh, who is this sort of technocratic multimillionaire, who was the mayor of Jerusalem for quite some time, and then joined the Likud party with higher office aspirations. Uh, and he said, well, Netanyahu, you've done great work for the country. Um, 
why don't you appoint a deputy prime minister who, if in the eventuality that you aren't able to do your duties, well, then that person will take over. And I just happen to be volunteering for the position. Um, so the very fact that people are actually saying this out loud, um, and then Netanyahu has to, you know, basically he made a concession. He said he will hold party leadership primaries, but he said within six weeks, which is actually code for by the time there's already another third election happening. Uh, he doesn't want them to replace him now because Israel is currently, this is worth explaining, Israel is currently in a 21-day period of sort of a Knesset free-for-all, where if any member of the Knesset can get 61, the majority of Knesset members, to recommend them as the next prime minister, that person gets a chance to form another coalition government. Uh, so they're not going to a third election just yet. Right. Um, and if Netanyahu is replaced at the top of the Likud party with another right-wing minister without his baggage, there's a chance that guy could form a government. Or that guy would just join a unity government with the chief opposition, blue and white, and they'd work out some sort of rotation deal uh, between the tops. Um, and all these things that Netanyahu has been refusing to do because he wants to stay prime minister, he wants to get immunity, and also by being prime minister, he gets certain privileges in the legal process that he wouldn't get if he wasn't prime minister. Um, so all of this is very important to him, but not very important for the prospects of the Likud party. Uh, so that's sort of where things stand, and that's you see these different approaches, silence, um, you know, some support, and then you have the more and less polite approaches trying to push Bibi out in time to either, really ideally, Likud wants to form a new government now uh, before they go to a third election because they're worried they're going to get blamed for it. Right. I mean, so that's a great lay down. I mean, just so listeners of the show uh, probably already know this because we've been covering these elections for months now, but there were two national elections in Israel this year, both basically ended uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu tying his chief rival, Benny Gantz, from the Blue and White Party. But the Israeli elections are different than American ones. It's not Republicans versus Democrats, head to head, and the winners in charge. You have to form a coalition that includes 61 of the Knesset's 120 seats. So neither Gantz nor Netanyahu has been able to do that. So as you noted, we're in this free-for-all period where anyone in, in parliament could could do so. I mean, do you think there's any chance of a government getting formed in that free-for-all period? Or do you think that we're likely to see a third election? You know, if you ask most prognosticators in Israel, they'll say third election. Uh, I have no idea because absolutely nobody predicted that we'd go to a second election, let alone a third election. So the idea that this period that's never been activated in Israeli political history, there's never been this, it's in the laws, it's there on the books that you can have this free-for-all period, but they've never done it. So no one really knows how it's going to shake out. Um, and it's very clear, um, and it comes down to whether or not there's enough power and muscle in the could to push Netanyahu out before they get to the next election. Right. Because if not, Netanyahu will he'll hold a primary, but then his people will leak polling that shows that Netanyahu, with his name recognition and his base, polls better than all his Likud challengers, and then he'll use that to win the leadership primary, and he'll force them to go to a third election with him. The time that Likud wants to get rid of him is in this 21-day period, and the question is, can they do it? And nobody really knows. Mm, wow. Um so a couple of months ago, we were having a conversation about these Israeli elections. And, you know, Ben and I had a conversation where we said, basically, uh, listeners shouldn't get too excited about Benny Gantz, who's Netanyahu's chief rival, because on some key issues like Palestinian rights or a two-state solution, he's not much better than Netanyahu. And, you know, some people might argue he's worse in some instances based on, you know, comments he's made about bombing Palestinians or, or Gaza, et cetera. So... You know, that you and I ended up having uh, a really interesting exchange about all the reasons you thought that take was wrong. And I was really hoping you could just set me straight here for the listeners about, you know, why Gantz might be different in all the ways you think that Netanyahu has damaged uh, Israeli institutions and the government. Yeah. So, I mean, to put it in an American context, 
um, you might be, you know, an American progressive rooting for, say, Elizabeth Warren to win the presidency. But you recognize that if you replaced Elizabeth, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, with John Delaney, um, it'd still be this massive sea change in America and for American democracy. Um, and think of it in terms of now imagine someone like this, you know, someone who has been putting stress on democratic institutions in Israel, uh, someone who has been appointing all his political cronies to positions throughout Israel, you know, whether to run like, you know, the Israel Prize, all sorts of like cultural institutions affecting educational curricula, all sorts of different things like that, and then challenging and attacking the courts and the police. Somebody like that has been in power for 10 years. And then you replace them with somebody else who ran explicitly against all of those things and said repeatedly over and over again, we need to preserve our democratic institutions, the Supreme Court, the police, and we need to recognize that that is what makes our society strong. So that is an incredible, incredible change. Um, and I don't think people really, if you haven't lived it, uh, you can't really quite uh, perceive it. I think you can in sort of an American context in a sort of analogous way. Uh, but when you talk to like Israeli leftists now, they're like, it's like light coming through the window for the first time in so long. Uh, because now Israelis are able to imagine themselves in a country where Netanyahu is not running the show, where his rhetoric doesn't define uh, what the public conversation is about, because uh, he has lost control of the public conversation for the very first time in a very long time. Um, think about it in terms of uh, you know, uh, an Israeli opposition leader, a former Israeli opposition leader, once said to me that Netanyahu's uh, prime ministership is basically uh, the cumulative effect of tendrils of fear seeping down into Israeli society. You have this person who's going on TV, who's an incredibly eloquent and effective communicator, constantly communicating what you should be afraid of, mm -hmm. right? And I am the only person who can protect you. And telling you, you should be, for example, afraid of Arab voters, and all of them are out to get you, and all their parties are out to get you, and they are not your friends, um, and you should be basically treating them like a fifth column. And he's been saying this, whether subliminally or in more recent elections, um, much more openly. Um, and then, you know, Netanyahu basically comes to a stalemate, loses uh, for the first time an actual election, I meaning he's not able to form a government. Uh, and then his opposition party, his opposition, uh, the Blue and White Party, starts openly coordinating a bit with the Israeli Arab parties. And the sky doesn't fall. They have conversations. They do negotiations. The Israeli Arab parties recommend uh, Netanyahu's challenger uh, to form the next government. And it turns out the polls show that, you know, a lot of Israeli voters like this. Um, the Arab politicians saw that, you know, so like the joint list party, which is predominantly Arab, uh, is like a com combination of several different parties with very different politics. Um, but polls of Israeli Arab voters show that the majority of Israeli Arab voters want uh, their politicians to be in the next Israeli government, not just to support it from the outside, which is actually what's been discussed. They want to be integrated and they want to have an effect on Israeli, the Israeli political scene. Um, and the sky hasn't fallen. People are talking about that as that's a realistic possibility. Netanyahu's fear-mongering campaign in the last election didn't work, right? It seems to have backfired. More Arab voters came out and voted. Right. Um, and not only that, but, uh, you know, the campaigns that ran not on that platform did better. Um, so that's like one very key reason. Uh, that's reason one why I think, you, like, if you change out Donald Trump, who's, who's appointing the judges? Who's filling the civil society, service positions? Who's running our foreign policy? Right? These are massive, massive changes uh, for any democracy. That's one. Number two, though, is I think that sometimes Gantz gets miscast, and then he gets criticized based on being miscast. Benny Gantz ran a centrist campaign with right-wing overtones. He did not run a left-wing campaign. If you're a leftist on Israeli issues or other issues, you probably are not going to like the exact campaign he 
run or all of his positions. Um, but, but what he did run was in complete opposition to sort of the entire ethos of Netanyahu. And he ran with the uh, with the notion that there is a different way forward for Israel. And he talked about, he didn't talk about a two-state solution, but he talked repeatedly about peace. And he like in one of his first campaign ads, he said, as someone who's fought for Israel, uh, for years, he held the top military position in Israel. I don't want to, you know, turn to our children down the line and say we didn't do everything we could uh, to stop the fighting, uh, because I don't want one more person to come home, you know, in a bag. Mm-hmm. And that sort of language, right, which is a security-centric way of arguing uh, for some sort of peaceful resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, is the sort of language that can win over a much broader swath of Israelis than, you know, if he went up there and gave a nice ode to Palestinian human rights. Uh, which you or I might give, but he has to win a broad mandate in the country, um, and so he's not going. He's not the left wing messiah, and he he's you know never was and isn't going to be. There are people who say he grew up on a left wing kibbutz, right? He comes out of the Israeli security establishment, which tends to be more dovish after they leave office. All of that's true, but you have to look at the campaign he ran. Um, but that's not why he's significant. Why he's significant is the same reason, say, Bill Clinton was significant after two terms of Reagan and one term of George H.W. Bush, mm-hmm. which is that you had um, this entire suffocating, um, all-encompassing uh, way of running the country. And then suddenly someone comes in and they pivot the country and they say, we're going to do it a different way. Right. Um, and by the time that their presidency is up, you have George W. Bush running um, and he's running as a compassionate conservative who will sometimes use government for good things, which is a totally different way of talking about the government uh, than what was going on during the Reagan era. Um, when you have someone like, say, Yitzhak Rabin in the Israeli context, who we see now as a martyr for peace, he was murdered for supporting um, peace talks between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, but if you look at his last speech that he gave uh, to the Israeli parliament, he didn't support dividing Jerusalem. He didn't really support a Palestinian state. He supported some form of political autonomy for the Palestinians. But what he did do is he got up there as somebody with tremendous security credentials, not unlike Gantz, and said, there is a different way we can go, right? And he pushed open the door and said, we need to go in this direction instead of that direction. And he changed the Israeli domestic conversation about the Palestinian issue, and he changed the international conversation about it ever since. And Netanyahu's premiership is basically the long history, 10 plus years of Netanyahu trying to close the door that Rabin opened, right? right? And that's not, not, that, that's not because Rabin was a flaming leftist. He's not, and I don't think historically that would stand up, right? It's because he was a hinge. And he pivoted the country's politics. And that's much more common in democracies. You don't usually have massive revolutionary swings. You have evolutionary swings. And to this is what Gantz represents uh, for a tremendous number of Israelis who want a different uh, approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether they're leftists or more of the center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we shouldn't understate that. And I also think politicians should recognize who he is and his limitations, right? but also recognize that that's the potential of this sort of premiership if he were to get it yeah hey i like that that's a lot more hopeful than uh the other alternatives i mean i just would love to see bb get the hell out of there and i'm 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 not going to predict because god we've tried so many times but there's just so many cases here they had to number them yeah well you know what the great mystery is so one of them is case 1000 one is 2000 and one is 4000 the great right. mystery is what is case 3000 i know Even i can't tell you no, it's a, it's a big secret. Well, listen, man, thank you so much for helping us understand what is going on uh, with Netanyahu's future, the political lay of the land, and what Benny Gantz would be. Uh, we will obviously uh, keep watching this process, but also everyone should follow you on Twitter if they can, because uh, you're updating us in real time. You want to give your handle? Yair, Y-A-I-R underscore Rosenberg. 
and you know, I'd love to talk with all of you. I love answering people's questions about this stuff. And you know, thanks, Tommy, for having me on. Oh, it was my pleasure, man. Thanks again, and uh, happy almost Thanksgiving. You too. Thanks again to Kelly Magsiman and Yair Rosenberg for joining the show, two of my favorite people to talk with, whether it's on this episode or on DMs or texts, because they always make me smarter. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Ben and I will be back in the saddle next week and talk to you soon. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. 